Krishna Dwaipayana, the great sage who was also known as Vyasa, as the compiler of Vedas. Though the Vedas are considered to be over hundred thousand years old and it remained an oral tradition that people from generation to generation transmitted it through oral traditions by telling it to each other. These are generations of people who understood the significance of sound, so they refused to write down the impact and significance of sound. Because of all the things that we use, the subtlest form of physicality 
is sound. Everything else that you use is electromagnetic, including what happens in your brain. So they did not attach too much importance to the thought, to the emotion, to whatever else happens. But sound was considered significant because it is the subtlest form of physicality and it could be used with immense and devastating impact. So, they maintained oral traditions, never written down. But then once it happened, the rich Gangetic plain was struck by a famine, which lasted for over fourteen years. They say for fourteen years, and not a drop of rain came, crops dried up. The civilizations of the day wilted away. People forgot to say the Vedas because they were picking up berries and nuts to eat. They completely forgot their traditions. So when once again the rains came and Vyasa saw the loss that had happened to that civilization because they had lost the Vedas, he thought it is best that it is written down, so he compiled it. People say, he could only remember and compile, he could only gather only about eight percent of the Vedas. This eight percent was classified into four segments of Veda called the Rig Veda, Atharvana Veda, Sama Veda and Yajur Veda. I am saying in that order because that is not the order that people use today, but traditionally that's the order. So this eight percent became four Vedas. Even today these four Vedas are considered to be among the greatest documents that humanity has ever compiled or prepared. But it was only eight percent of what was said and what he could remember, he put it together. So the next time he wanted to compile a great story, an eternal story which could be relevant to people forever and ever. He did not want to take chances. He spoke to two people. One is Vaishampayana, his disciple, who heard in awe. But you know disciples can distort, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so he hired a god, that's why we got him here today just in case you get it wrong. <laughs> and the deal was he has to write down because Vyasa wouldn't trust the human memory anymore because this method of transmitting through human memory was in the Satyuga when people were of a certain mental caliber. As this caliber came down towards Kali, we're going up right now, as it started receding, Vyasa thought it is best it is written down. You cannot trust human memory anymore and they will distort. So there was one person writing down, another person listening. But unfortunately, the written document was so attractive, it was such a grand piece of literature, the gods came and stole it.
and they took it away. So, the way we know Mahabharata is only to the extent Vaishampayana remembered, not the way Ganapati wrote down. So still, it is these hundred thousand verses that we are talking about are still only a fragment of what he spoke. Out of those hundred thousand, I will speak less than eight percent <laughs> So, you need to be absolutely involved not looking at it like a piece of his story as your story, being a part of it because we want to walk through the story, not hear somebody else's story. And these were times when the transaction between the planet Earth and other forms of life was very frequent. So there are various aspects to this which you will find is simply unbelievable for you, but you should not disbelieve anything. Because we are twenty-first uh, century, we value dissection more than an embrace. Yes, listen to me. We value dissections more than an embrace. We will turn back and dissect later. Right now I want you to be an embrace with this story and with these people and with these characters, with the human beings, animal forms, yakshas, kinaras, ganas, devas, gods, goddesses, all kinds. I want you to be in an embrace, not in a state of dissection. You'll miss the whole spirit of what it is. So over seven thousand years ago, We will start seven thousand, okay? You want to start further back? Okay, much further back, there was a priest, a master priest whose name was Brihaspati. Even today if somebody is very brilliant, very capable, people say he's a Brihaspati. His name is still in usage because he was a master priest, a master scholar. So naturally, Indira, the king of gods, himself, the king of devas, hired him as his official priest. Why a priest was very important for these days is because this is Dvapara Yuga. This is a time when ritual was the most significant aspect of their life where they learn to use methods around them, substances around them in a way to impact their own life, the situations around them and also other people's lives. A remnant of this ritualistic culture still lives on. Down south, probably Kerala has kept more ritual than any other part of the country. Kerala has kept it probably in a better state of purity than any other part of the country. It is completely horribly corrupted up north where the story happened. That is present Haryana, Uttar Pradesh and those regions. Middle India, Madhya Pradesh, Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, they kept it 
to some extent, but not with profound understanding of what it is. We can say it even today, it is Kerala which keeps the ritual in… not in the best purity, but in the maximum purity that's available right now in the country or in the world. The worst you will find up in Tibet, all Hindu rituals distorted very badly and unfortunately Gautam Buddha is being tortured with rituals. All his life, his life was to free humanity from ritual because he was at the cusp where time was shifting from Kali Yuga to Dwapara Yuga. So he wanted to relieve the humanity because he knew last time in Dwapara Yuga they were so ritualistic. So he wanted to relieve them of ritual. So he insisted only on meditation and meditation and meditation. But today the Buddhist cultures have become far more ritualistic than any Hindu culture in the country. <laughs> so from north to south, you will see the very tip. Later on we'll come to this, Krishna himself felt if he, if he sends the deities and the rituals across the western gods to Kerala, they will live better. And that is the reason why Guruvayur temple was set up, we will come to that, how he took care to set it up beyond the mountains so that it is not corrupted by that day's culture. <laughs> so Vaishampayana told the story, after the war was over, to the second generation of the same dynasty of emperors called Janamejaya. Now when Bruhaspati was the main priest or the official priest of Indra, who was the king of Devas, had a wife whose name was Tara. Brihaspati represents the planet, the Jupiter. Tara means the stars. So these two were married and this is one thing that you need to understand. In the ritualistic way of life in this country, a woman's place in the ritual is as important as the man's. This simple arrangement in ancient India made sure that though the physical conditions outside were harsh, still a woman found an equal place because a man cannot perform a ritual without his wife. A man cannot go attain to mukti without his wife. A man cannot get… receive blessing without his wife. A man cannot go to heaven without his wife. Tch, what a serious handicap <laughs> So at that time, the social norms or what was referred to as dharma fixed it so that a woman cannot be used or abused or neglected because she is such an important part of… If you tell him she is a part, very important part of your physical life, very clearly man can see that everything in the physical world happens because of him and his muscle. He would just wipe her out. But the other dimension of your life, 
is not possible for you unless your woman is next to you. This one thing fixed him up in such a way that he has to value the woman. So Bruhaspati needed Tara for everything that he wanted to do. Though he is the, the king of God, Indra's priest, without Tara, he's crippled and he will become unemployed. So he was holding on to her only because she's useful for his employment, otherwise he'll, lo he'll lose his employment. And he himself will entering all over the place. Seeing this, one day she looked up at the full moon and fell in love with the moon god. So, moon god Chandra himself came down and they got into a big romance and after some time she eloped with him. Bruhaspati became furious because it's not just about losing a wife, you lost your job, you lost your prestige, you lost your place in the society and you can't enter Devaloka or the god's world anymore. So, he called Indira and he said, I want my wife back, you have to get her back, otherwise I will not perform your rituals. So Indra interfered and compelled Tara for the first time. I'm saying for the first time, because this is the first time where somebody is compelling somebody to stick to a certain family structure. And he compelled and said, you have to come back. She said, no, my love is up there. He said, it doesn't matter what your emotions are, the dharma is you must be with him because we, unless you stay with him, my rituals <laughs> will go bad. <laughs> so she was brought back. And then Tara was pregnant. Brahaspati wanted to know, whose child is it? Tara refused to speak. People gathered. Tara refused to speak. Then from inside the womb, the unborn child asked the question, whose child am I really? Then all the people assembled was in huge appreciation of the intelligence of this child, wanting to know when he is still in the womb, what seed is he made of? People said, you must, you may refuse to tell your husband, you must refuse to tell the gods, but you cannot refuse to tell your unborn child. So, Tara said, it is Chandra's child. Bruhaspati got so angry that his wife is carrying the child of another man, he cursed the child. He said, may you become a neuter, that you will be neither a man nor a woman. So, this child was born and he was named as Buddh. Buddh once again means Buddha or Mercury. So, Buddh was named as Buddh because he is neither man nor a woman, he is a neuter. He grew up and he lamented with his mother, what am I supposed to do? Should I live as a man? Should I live as a woman? 
what is my dharma? Should I follow the masculine dharma? Should I follow the feminine dharma? What should I do? Should I become an ascetic? Should I get married? Whom should I marry? Should I marry a man or should I marry a woman? Tara said, when this existence has space, when this existence has accommodation for all these billions and billions of stars and other kinds of things, and variety of creatures who are neither men nor women nor gods nor devils, when this existence has space for all that, don't you worry, for you also there is space. For you also, there will be a life. You simply be, life will come your way. So, Buddha grew up, neither being a man nor a woman. One day, King Sudyumna went hunting in the forest. And in that forest, Shiva and his wife Parvati were there and in a whim, Parvati said, she looked at the animals, the bull elephants, the lions with huge mane, peacocks strutting around. She said, my love for you is such that I feel these bull elephants, these lions with huge manes, these peacocks with fabulous plumes, all this is an insult for you. I want you to make this forest in such a way, there is no other male but you. Shiva was in a romantic mood. He said, okay, let everything in this forest turn female. So everything in the forest turned female. The lions become lionesses, the bull elephants become cow elephants, peacocks became peahens, King Sudyumna. Turn into a woman. He looked at himself, a brave king who came hunting in the forest, suddenly he has become a woman. He cried, who did this to me? Which yaksha, which demon, who cursed me like this? In great despondency he searched around and then he found Shiva and Parvati in romance. He came and fell at Shiva's feet and said, this is not fair. I am a king, I am a man, I have a family. I just came hunting and you turned me into a woman. How do I go back? What do I do? Shiva looked and he looked at her. <laughs> you asked, <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> he said, see I cannot take back what I have done but I can correct it a bit. We'll make it in such a way for you. When the moon is in the waning mode, you will remain a woman. When the moon is in a waxing mode, you will become a man. So that 
it is partly corrected, the mistake I have done for you. So Sudhyumna lived in the forest, refused to go back and he became known as Ila. Many of you heard of Ila in probably the name Ila in many different ways. Ila is that man and that woman who was in one half of the month was male, in another half of the month was female. One day it so happened, Buddha and Ila met and it was a perfect match. Both of them were male and female at the same time, so they met. Between them, they had many children. These children were called as Elas. These Elas became the first Chandravamshis. In the tradition of the kings in this country, there are Suryavamshis and Chandravamshis, descendants of the sun and descendants of the moon. They're distinctly different type of people. The sun people are conquerors, all clear-cut black and white people. Chandravamshis are… you know every day he is different. They are very emotional, artistic, highly unreliable. The examples, the great examples that you would have invariably heard of from the Suryavamshi culture or the greatest one is Manu himself, then comes Ikshvaku. Down the line there are many Harishchandra and of course there is nobody who does not know of Ram of Ayodhya, Dasharatha and Ayodhya, Bharata. So we will talk about Chandravamshis because the Kurus largely belong to Chandravamshis. Though here and there the lineages meet, they are largely Chandravamshis. That explains their emotionally inflamed states through which they act. So between Buddha and Ila, they had children and one of them was Nahusa, Nahusa became a great emperor and uh, we will revisit Nahusa later because he became a great king and then he was invited to Devaloka, to Indra's palace. And Indra had some other chore or he was going on a vacation. So he told Nahusa, you take care of my Devaloka for some time. Enjoy yourself, be here, administer the place well. So the moment Indra left, Nahusa became so proud of this little chore that was given to him, just to take care of the place when Indra is not there. He went and sat on Indra's throne. He called just about any apsara that he wanted. That was not enough. Indra's wife Sachi, his eyes fell on her. So he started compelling her, now I am sitting on the throne, I am Indira, you are mine. In many ways she tried to avoid him, but he started forcing himself. 
So Sachi said, yes, now you are Indira, I will be yours. Only thing is, you must ride a… you must be carried by the Saptarishis. The seven sages should carry you and bring you here on a palakman. Then I will be yours. So he demanded the Saptarishis should carry him on a palaquin to Sachi's palace. They carried him. He was in too much pride and rush. He felt they were not walking fast enough. So Agastyamuni, who was holding the right side of his palaquin, he kicked him in the head. Go faster! Agastya just looked at him and said, too much has gotten into you. You have become so base, you are unfit not just to be in Devaloka, even you are unfit to be a human being, you become something very base. You become a python. Python is a very base animal. So Nahusha fell from Devaloka down in the form of a python. The python will come back later. There's still a lot of things to happen before the python comes back because he's a slow guy, you know. Nahusha bore children, the two important ones are Yati and Yayati. Yati, known for his character, and his phenomenal intellect looked at the world one glance and he said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And he withdrew into the mountains and became an ascetic. So he became a yati in the Himalayas. His name still lives on. Yayati became a king. On the other side, Brihaspati was the priest for the devas. But Shukra was the priest for the asuras. Asuras are historically, people are trying to describe them as azurs or azuras or the Parsi people. They are also, some archaeologists are saying, Asuras came from South America. They were the Incas and the Mayans who traveled here and they were known as Asuras. Their priest was Shukracharya. Shukracharya had immense capabilities. Bruhaspati was doing ritual for devas, Shukracharya was doing work for the Asuras. Devas and Asuras constantly fought in the Gangetic Plains because Devas were trying to descend from the higher regions. Asuras were trying to move away from the desert into more fertile region of the heartland of India. Constant battles happened. But Asuras had one advantage, they had Shukracharya and he had the power of Sanjeevini. Have you drank the ganji? <laughs> he had the power of Sanjeevini, that he had a Sanjeevini mantra 
that whoever died in the battle, he would revive them. So all the asuras who died fighting in the battle, at the end of the day they were all revived. And again they're ready for fighting tomorrow morning, how do you fight an army like this? When you kill them, they must stay dead. Yes? <laughs> when you kill somebody, they must stay dead. If they come back, how do you fight them? Because of Shukracharya, they kept reviving and devas were desperate. So Brihaspati's son, Kecha, came down to Shukracharya, bowed down to him and said, I am the grandson of Angira, son of Brihaspati, I come from good lineage, I want to be your disciple, please receive me. The asuras warned Shukracharya, this guy is from the opposite camp. Obviously he has come to learn the secret of Sanjeevini. Let's kill him right now. Shukracharya said, no, the boy has done no harm to us and he's come the right way. He has the necessary qualifications to be a disciple, so I cannot refuse. So the dharma of the day said, if somebody deserves to be taught, he cannot be refused. There was no capitation fee. <laughs> Don't believe that, there is decapitation fee. <laughs> we'll come to that later <laughs> So, Kacha was received as the disciple and he proved to be a worthy disciple. He served his master and took every instruction and was very much a part of that. Shukra had a daughter whose name was Deviyani. Deviyani looked at this young man and slowly succumbed and fell in love with him. But this young man was not focused on the young girl who is there, he is only focused on the purpose for which he has come. Whatever she did, she couldn't draw his attention for a moment. He is there for the purpose for which he is there. He could not be deviated from what he's come for. The Asuras knew he is come for Sanjeevini. So one day, he was grazing his master's cattle in the forest. The Asuras pounced upon him, killed him, tore him into bits and threw him to the wild animals to be eaten. Then in the evening when he did not come back, only the cows came back and the boy did not come back, Deviyani was heartbroken. She went to her father and she cried, he's not come back, something has happened, somebody has done something to him. You must bring him back to life wherever he is. Kind of giving in to his daughter's need, Shukracharya used the Sanjeevini and brought back Kacha. And when he was asked what happened, Kacha described what happened, how the Asuras pounced on him and killed him. And when he was told this, he said, be careful, yes I can understand, Asuras don't like you, you are from the enemy camp, but I am treating you as my disciple. After a few days, 
Kacha went to pluck flowers for the burning worship. The asuras caught hold of him, killed him, ground him, ground his flesh and bone, mixed it with salt water in the sea and took a little bit of it and mixed it in the wine and gave it to Shukracharya. Unknowingly, Shukracharya drank the wine. Then when Kacha did not turn up, Devyani hollered and Shukracharya said, it looks like it's his destiny to be dead. He is dying too often. <laughs> there is no point going on bringing him back. Someone of your intelligence, someone of your breeding, someone of your expo exposure to life should not be crying about life and death. This is something that happens to every creature. Let him be, let him be dead. Waking up somebody too often is not good. But Devyani is heartbroken. Either Kacha comes back or I will also drown myself in the lake. Not willing to allow that to happen, Shukrasyara said, let's do it for the last time. And he tried to use the mantra and then he found rumblings in his stomach. Kacha, kach kach from inside. Then Shukracharya got furious, who did this? Is this also Asura's work? How can they do this? Then Kacha spoke from within and narrated the whole story, how they killed him, how they ground him, mixed him with salt water and they took the organs, ground that and mixed it with the wine. Then Shukracharya became very angry. This is not fair going this far that now they put him in my belly, either I have to let him stay dead or if I bring him alive, I have to die. He thought, maybe I must just resign this job and join the devas. I'm being treated too badly, how dare they put this boy in my belly? But Devyani cried. She said, I am neither willing to live without Kacha nor without you. If any one of you die, I will drown myself. <laughs> he told Kacha, you have succeeded in the mission for which you came. You wanted to know the secret of Sanjeevini and you're a deserving candidate. Now I will teach you the secret of Sanjeevini and then I will use it. You will burst out of my body which will lay me dead. You use the Sanjeevini, bring me back to life and find your life wherever. So he used the Sanjeevini and like a rising moon, Kacha grew in his stomach and burst out of Shukracharya. Shukracharya fell dead. And a scream went up from Devyani and then Kacha who had learned the mantra, used the mantra and brought Shukracharya back to life, bowed down to him and was about to leave.
Devyani said, you cannot leave, I have loved you. Devyani begged him. This lineage of people who come from combination of Chandra, the moon, a highly emotional process and Bud, Bud means Mercury. It is… Bud also means the intellect. So it is a mixture of emotion and intellect. So they are not people who are completely lost in emotion, it's interwoven with intellect, which makes them much richer kind of life than the Suryavamsis. However much she begged Kacha, Kacha said, I am your father's disciple. On that level, you are like my sister. Another thing is, just now I came out of your father's body, so he is also my mother. So that way also, you are my sister. So there is no way. You forget about this and he walked away. The king of the area, the Asura king, who was known as Vishaparva, his daughter Sharmista and Devyani were close friends. A certain incident occurred which became the root of the Kuru dynasty in a way. These two young girls went out to the river to bathe. They put their clothes and jewels separately. You must understand separately because one is the daughter of a king, she's a princess, but she's an Asura princess. Devyani is the daughter of Shuk Shukracharya, a priest. That means she's from the Brahmin clan and in those days it is held as the highest group among the social groups. So their clothes should not be mixed, they were kept separately. So they were playing in the river and a big wind came, clothes rolled over and they got little mixed up. When they came out of the river, naturally in a hurry to dress up, Sarmiste by mistake wore Devyani's clothes, parts of it. Devyani, half in jest, but half establishing her superiority, she said, how does it seem that you should be wearing the clothes of your other's guru's daughter? How should it feel and how is it appropriate? So, Sharmista realized the mistake and she flew into a rage being a princess. She said, your father is a beggar. In front of my father, he bows down, he lives out of him. It is what my father doles out, with that you live. You better know your place. And she pushed her 
into your pit. The girl fell down and she left her there and went away in a huff. So later on Devyani came back home, she plunged into her father's lap and cried and cried for revenge. She said, you have to teach this princess a lesson. Then Shukracharya demanded for the insult that she had imposed on his daughter, he demanded the princess should become a maid for her girl. The king had no other way because without Shukracharya he would be lost because he brings the dead alive. So Sharmista became a maid. You will see throughout the story, there are curses and boons. Boons and curses, curses and boons. But you don't know whether a curse is a boon or a boon is a curse. Because life has its own way of mixing things up. A curse becomes a boon, a boon becomes a curse. Sharmiste was cursed to be a maid to Devyani. Then it so happened, that Devyani's marriage was arranged with Yayati. She did not want it to end there. She said Sharmiste should follow her as her maid, personal maid, to her new home where she goes as a wife. So accordingly Sharmiste followed. Somebody did something, she took her revenge, she should have left it there. She wanted to draw it, she wanted to rub, rub it in some more, so she took her. Then Yayati and Devyani left. Devyani had a son whose name was Yadu. You still have his clan fighting right now in UP. All the Yadavas came from the Yadukula. And Sharmiste was Devyani's maid. Being a princess, she carried herself with a certain dignity. She made herself even more attractive than Devyani. Invariably, Ayati fell in love with Sharmiste. And a secret love affair happened, and they had a child. And that child is Puru, who in many ways became the father of the Kuru dynasty. From Puru, a few generations down, came Dushyanta, Bharata, and Vitata, and down to Shantana. There are interesting stories all along, but the relentless march of time. We have to respect that. <clears throat> Yadu, though is the first son who should have naturally become the king, did not become the king because Yayati, because of a certain misdemeanor, that is when Shukracharya realized that Yayati has been deceiving his daughter and he has had a child with the maid, he cursed him 
may you lose your youth and become an old man. He lost his youth and became an old man and he struggled with this, he could not come to terms with this. When Yadu grew up and became a fine youth, he asked him, give me your youth for a few years, let me enjoy the youth and then I will give it back to you. Yadu said, nothing doing, I'm not interested. First thing you deceived my mother, now you want to deceive me of my youth? No. So Yayati cursed Yadu, may you never be a king. The second son, Puru, born to Sharmiste, when he became a youth, he voluntarily offered his youth to his father. Father, you enjoy the youth, it doesn't mean anything to me. So Yayati became youthful once again and lived as a young man for a period of time and then when he felt he's done with it, he gave it back to his son and made him the king. Puru became the king. From there, his descendants later on came to be known as Kurus, from which both the Pandavas and the Kauravas come. The whole story is about this clan of people. You're talking about many rishis, Vashishtha, Arashara, and some of these names also come in the Guru Puja that we do. And some qualities like revenge were ascribed to them in the story. I was wondering that if they were enlightened beings, why would they want revenge? A sage, your idea of a sage is an insipid, <laughs> Your idea of a sage is an insipid, I can't call him my man, I don't know what to call him, an insipid human who has a very generous growth of hair. and who is stupid enough to memorize things that were written by other people. And who has a constipated look of peace on his face. <laughs> That's your idea of sage. That is not the kind of sages this land has seen. People who walk this land, the sages, were fiery people. You should have seen Sadhguru Shri Brahma. He was hotter than the fire. You would feel cool sitting in the fire than sitting in his presence. <laughs> a rage, simply a rage, now modified for modern times. <laughs> so, your idea of a sage has to change. They are called sages because they have access to a dimension which most people have no access to. Not because, you know, <laughs> today in the world it's become like this. A saint or a sage 
in today's world, which is unfortunately uh, No, I don't have bad enough vocabulary <laughs> to describe the sacrilege that's happened to humanity as to what is being described as a saintliness, as being a sage. In the western part of the world, if you have to be a saint, you should have done something utterly stupid. That is, something unreasonable should have happened around you. Somebody should come and say, I had no legs and I got legs <laughs> Till now I've never seen anybody coming out and saying I had no brain and I got brains <laughs> Because such people, those who value human brain, never go there. All the most unintelligent things that are done are called saintly in the world today. So your idea of a sage has to change. These are sages who raged this land. I'm saying raged, not ranged. They did range, but they also raged. Is it because there is no peace in them? No, they're absolutely still, but they're fire on the outside. Because if there's no fire, how to light up the place? How to light up the place without fire? Do you know some other way? What you call a sun is fire. What you call a star is fire. Only the moon is a reflection. Everything else that you know as light is fire. And how can a sage who wants to show a way for you, who wants to light your way, to your ultimate liberation, not be fiery, there is no other way to be. You said Mahabharata is spread over many thousands of years. It was written by Vyasa who is part of the whole drama. How did he manage to know everything and write about everybody there? Probably we did not say enough about Vyasa. Can we put the Vyasa poem? Vyasa, a scoundrel is knowledgeable. A fool will know, a sage is an empty page. Vyasa, a scoundrel is knowledgeable. A fool will know, a sage is an empty page. Does it sound too harsh to you? <laughs> so, no, don't read it the other way around, the knowledgeable are scoundrels <laughs> You should read it that way, only then you understand the meaning. The knowledgeable are scoundrels. Those who think they know are fools. One who is an empty page is a sage. Because it is in the scape of emptiness, everything is happening in the existence. So when do you think you're knowledgeable? Okay, when do you think somebody is a scoundrel? You must tell me the definition. Yeah? You have met people, <laughs> tell me, <laughs> Chitra. Who is a scoundrel? Who is a scoundrel? 
So anybody who uses his knowledge to take advantage of people around him, the world around him, he's a scoundrel according to her, I didn't say this, according to her. Then tell me in the present world who is not a scoundrel? Everybody is patenting every little thing that they know, isn't it? Yes or no? Every little thing that they know is patented and you have to pay for it. Things that we have known forever, even for that you will have to pay for it. Even the yoga asanas are patented in America. Tomorrow morning if you want to do your Surya Namaskar, if you do one Surya Namaskar, you must pay me three hundred rupees. Two is a discount, it's five hundred. Three, it is six hundred. As you increase, we'll reduce the price a little bit, but as you do more, you must pay me. How's this? This is what it is today in the world, isn't it? Tell me, show me somebody who's not a scoundrel, unfortunately, there are very few left. But those who are not con… those who are not considered scoundrels are considered stupid because they're not making money out of what they know. It's very few who are not scoundrels left in the world in your definition, according to your definition, not mine. My definition is harsher. Uh, let's not go there because you will think I am an unrealistic standards I am setting. It's not unrealistic, it is just that if you do it, if you do the world that way, we would live in a beautiful world. But we have chosen to live in a harsh world because we have made scoundrels knowledgeable or we call scoundrels as knowledgeable people. We should make a law, any kind of knowledge should be pooled free of cost anywhere and anybody, just about anybody should be able to use it, isn't it? Only with the necessary restraint of learning it with the right context, yes or no? So that people don't hurt themselves with knowledge, that much restraint but no other restraint. Ah, uh, but that is not practical now. Anyway, one who thinks that he knows is obviously fool. And a sage is an empty page because emptiness is the largest dimension in the creation. Because of the nature of your senses, if you look around, you see a lot of things. If you look up in the sky, you see galaxies out there, but all galaxies are small specks of creation in the vast limitless nothingness or emptiness. But your eyes pick up only those small specks. It is for this reason they said you must transcend your sense organs because they're deceiving you. They're showing you small things and making you miss the big thing. They're giving you a little picture and denying you a larger picture, that is maya. That's what it means. The senses will do this to you, that it keeps you engaged with small things and make you miss the big story completely. People live here, everybody is mortal, but they live here as if they're forever. 
and they're a tiny speck of dust in the creation, but they think they're everything, this is the most amazing thing. So a sage is an empty page means he's become like creation. He's not knowledgeable, he's not studied, he's become like an empty page. Because he's an empty page, he's an endless resource. On an empty page you could write what you want. Whatever you write on this, if it still remains empty, an empty page means not carrying the burdens of yesterday, not carrying the burdens of previous moment, that means an absolute blank when it comes to karmic accumulation. One who is an absolute blank with karmic accumulation, his body and his mind is a constant recreation. So there is no time span for that one. If he wishes, he can stay. There is a certain law of the planet which will age the body, but if he spends enough time on it, he can erase the age and revive himself. So Vyasa stayed on till it was necessary for the whole drama to be seen through, delivered this and then disappeared. So that's Vyasa. Of all these characters in Mahabharata, that is the most profound character. He is there in every scene. I have not been bringing him in as much as possible, because I thought it will be completely misunderstood. Oh, a sage came and blessed them, so it happened, not like that. He's an empty page. The whole drama is happening in his consciousness. As far as he's concerned, the whole drama is happening in his consciousness. He told them, whenever you want, if you call me, I will appear physically and do what best I can do for you. Otherwise, the whole thing is happening in the scape of his consciousness because he's an empty page. Guru, Karna and the Parikshakti died because of curses they had on them. Uh, who was to curse? Is there a specific qualification one has to, to make it perfect? Ah. <laughs> who has to curse and are they more powerful than Karna or Parikshakti? First tell me who is your victim? <laughs> I just want to know what the uh, relevance of curse in today's context. No, no, whom are you planning? No, I just wanted to ask you whether any… No, no, that is fine, I got the question. But oh. whom are you planning, I said <laughs> More specific uh, thing. Oh. <laughs> 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 one have qualification to curse somebody, like uh, the, the Brahmana who cursed Karna or this… Uh, this disciple who cursed uh, Parikshat, no? Are they more powerful than uh, those? The question is, what is the qualification to be able to curse somebody? <laughs> so I'm sure quite a few are interested in the question <laughs> So, the curse, Gandhari's curse, the Brahmana who curses, Karna, Parshurama who curses a few people. How do these things work? Is there really such thing or is it just a psychological factor? There is an element of psychological factor. 
but it will work. Life is energy. This is a fact established beyond doubt. Life is energy. Body is energy. Mind is energy. The life within is energy. If you are just a physical person, that's why they say, if a Shudra curses, nothing will happen. If a Vaishya curses, you will miss a meal. If a Vaishya curses, you will miss a meal. If your Kshatriya curses, you may lose your limb or life. If a Brahmana curses, you may lose everything. Why this is said is, I, I want you to understand this terminology of Brahmana, Kshatriya, Vaishya and Shudra, not the way it is understood today, but in terms of qualification. Let us understand this as qualification, not sects of… sects of people who are born in certain families. So Shudra means somebody who does menial jobs, all he knows is his body. A Vaishya is somebody who is using his body and his mind to some extent. He is largely free of emotion except for his own family. His emotional role is very small area, highly emotional but very small area, but still his calculation in the head and his body rules the nature of who he is. Akshatriya is passionate to a point where his life energies get involved. He is more in his heart, otherwise he cannot rule. Otherwise, he cannot lay down his life for what he believes in. A Vaishya would never sacrifice his life. He will make a deal, he will negotiate. A Kshatriya is honor bound, he will not negotiate. He would rather die. For him, a compromise is death. He will rather die than compromise. But a Vaishya is not like that, he will make any kind of deal. A Brahmana is flexible in a different way, but rigid in a some other way. So he is somebody who is supposed to have touched the Brahman in him, supposed to have touched the nature of the ultimate within himself. If this one curses for sure, it will happen. So Karna received curses from two brahmanas, one a very powerful one, another one an ordinary one, but both of them stuck. Both of them stuck on him. The second one only cursed the chariot wheel should be stuck. Even if the chariot wheel was stuck, if he remembered the mantras, he could have still killed Arjuna. But the bigger curse is Parashurama's curse, that he will forget his astras at the right moment. That is the real giveaway. Chariot wheel stuck, he could have jumped down and still fought. But the problem is he's forgotten the mantra. He's trying to find time to remember. Working on the chariot wheel, he's thinking he can remember. The more he thinks, the more confused he got. That's your death. So when you curse somebody or when you bless somebody, both ways you are giving away something that you have earned. You need to understand this. To curse and to bless, 
for both, you have to expend some of the energy that you have built up which is positive for your life. A curse will cost that much depending upon how far-reaching a curse it is. A blessing will cost much more depending upon how far-reaching the blessing is. This is the reason in India, the blessing, if you go anywhere to any saint, he will look at you first, look away, jai ho. Have you seen this? If you go to the northern India, the blessing is always jai ho. Very rarely they look at you and say, vijayi bhava, because that's going to cost much more. Jaiho is for your inner victory, which is a real victory. For this, he is blessing generally. This is if he is a sage or a saint. People who are wearing the uniform but who are actually beggars or businessmen, that's a different game. They can do anything. You got nothing to give, so what's there? You can open up your treasury. If there's nothing in your treasury, you can open it up all the time and you say you're very open because you got nothing. <laughs> when you have something valuable, that's when it matters, isn't it? So the blessing always is towards spiritual well-being. If you have to bless somebody because of certain situations towards a material well-being, it costs much more because it needs to manifest in the physical world. If it needs to manifest in the inner world, the blessing, let us say, to make you understand, <laughs> let's say it costs one unit of energy, one unit of electricity to bless you towards your inner well-being. If I have to bless you to pass an examination for which you have not studied, <laughs> then it would cost hundred units of energy. So if you come to me for a blessing for an examination, I will bless you to pass the final exam, <laughs> not the tenth exam. I don't care whether you pass the tenth exam or not, even I didn't care when I sat for it. <laughs> so don't come to me for such things. I can bless you. You need to understand this. If your inner nature is blessed, the outer will manifest out of that blessing. Instead of seeking a blessing for the outer world, it's best to live with grace. If you live with grace, your own energies will blossom and you can manifest your physical or material life effectively. But if I have to make things happen, you are blundering idiot but you want things to happen, then it costs enormous amount of energy. This is what you see when Krishna tries to manifest life for a little infant. He is able to do so many things. But to give life to this little infant, he's almost tottering on his feet because it cost him a million units of energy to bring this child back to life. But he could man manipulate a million people to do what he wanted them to do. That did not cost him, he went about joyfully smiling. But to bring this little life back to life, it cost him so much. 
So both blessing and curse will cost. A curse will cost you even more because if I bless you towards what you want, apart from my blessing, you will also work towards it. So maybe it won't cost so much. It is not only at the time of blessing, you will continue to cost. Suppose I bless you to succeed in some mission that you have taken up right now and I want to ensure that you succeed. If you are intelligent, if you are skillful, if you are dedicated towards that mission, now it'll cost me less. You are an idiot who only received the blessing and tomorrow morning you go home and you've forgotten for what you received the blessing and you start doing your own idiotic things, then it will drain on a daily basis because you have given somebody the contact and that idiot how he makes use of it. I'm… I'm going on saying that idiot, this idiot, this stupid because I don't want to use worse vocabulary than that because people do this not knowing what they're taking. But with blessing, there is a hope that you will work for it. But if I curse you, you will work against it. So this is going to cost tenfold more than a blessing because you are trying to work against it, my energies are trying to work for it. So now Karna is cursed that he should forget his mantras. I am sure to ensure that he does not forget the mantras, every day he is chanting the mantras a thousand times to ensure that he will not forget when it… when he needs it. Now, this is going to cost Parachurama enormously because the man is determined to see the curse doesn't work, but this man is determined to see the curse works. So the curse, depending upon the determination and skill, of the person is, who is cursed may cost phenomenally more than a blessing. Once again a blessing, how much it costs simply depends on the intelligence, the skill and dedication of that person. If he's really focused and on, your blessing is just a gentle nudge when he cannot cross some hurdles, then it is easy. But if the fool doesn't do anything and he expects it to happen, then it costs phenomenally for the one who blesses because he cannot withdraw it. Repeatedly it's being said, I cannot withdraw it. Maybe I can change it a bit but I cannot withdraw it because you have opened up a certain field, you cannot close it suddenly, whether it's a blessing or a curse. Yes, <laughs> how do I qualify myself to curse people? You did not ask how do I qualify myself to bless people. Unfortunate, isn't it? You asked, how do I qualify myself to curse people? This is my curse. May you never be qualified for cursing anybody <laughs> Don't work against my curse. Work for it. Work for my curse, all of you. Yes? Work for my curse, don't again… don't work against my curse, it'll cost me. <laughs>